Once again, it is truly an honor to be here and to continue the pulpit ministry with Bill. I wanted to know what he was preaching. He says, I'm not sure where I'm going next week, but um, we're going to go somewhere. And we have a couple weeks until the church year celebrates Pentecost. And so I have taken up the task of the scripture assigned to this week in uh, the series A, the liturgical year, the fifth Sunday of the resurrection and the second Sunday before uh, Pentecost. So keep that in mind. I want to talk a little bit about my childhood home and that we lived in northern Minnesota and uh, it's a great place to be from. I don't mind going back in the summer. Um, And I would like to go back and do some fishing there. My father had 300 acres about and uh, it's not a lot and it was fortunate that he had them. There's a longer story as how we got there. I was born the first year that uh, they lived on that place, 1955. You can figure that out. I'm 67, be 68 in a couple of months. 12 years to 80. Here we go. Yeah. And uh, some of you might recognize from that culture that hospitality was not the way it is today and not the way it was in other cultures of the the country. In some cultures, if you were going to have company, you had to plan a month in advance, and you had to have every meal and dessert prepared with options and all that stuff. But uh, in in my culture, if you came on the yard uh, plowing snow or delivering fuel or feed or picking up cattle or whatever you came on the yard for, It was insisted you come into the house on the spur of the moment and have coffee and goodies. Anybody recognize that culture? Oh, yeah. Okay. Is that a foreign culture to some of you? I know it is. You just... So one time, uh, my sisters told me, because I was too little that somebody came on the yard, a neighbor came to borrow something or to say hi, and dad invited him in. Now you understand, my, I'm number eight. My mom had a house full of kids and she was busy and she didn't happen to have anything baked on the counter that day. And when the company left with just coffee, it didn't go well in the house. You know, I'm sorry, dad could learn to bake too, okay? Or he could go get something. But um, there there had to be hospitality. And if you're a stranger, it didn't matter. So we're talking today about the father's policy of welcoming strangers in the house. Now, you might think that's scared, and we tell our kids not to worry about, to worry about strangers. And, uh, you know, set your alarms and all that. But listen to this very challenging scripture when you begin to meditate on it and where it comes from. Let not, John 14, 1-4, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Jesus, in me. Jesus is speaking, and we'll tell you where he's at. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you 
that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, would I have told you that I prepare a place for you? If it were not so, wouldn't I have told you that... uh, Okay, I'm messing that all up, but... um, Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Your pastor Bill read you the rest of that story and focused on a later verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is a sidebar sermon to say, so what, what's the context of that? And where is he going with it? So that was the introduction. I'm going to give you what's called biblical theology now for a couple of minutes, which is no big deal. It just means tell the story. What does the Bible say? The Apostle John is writing a historical theological treatise. That just means that he is taking the stories of Jesus and he's not arranging them in chronological order, although they generally are, but he's using the stories of Jesus to make a huge theological statement that God from heaven has come to earth to make a place for us. That's where he's going. The people involved in this particular chapter are only Jesus and his disciples. They are up in, the, in what's called the upper room, like we are up above the basement. We are in the upper room. And the setting here is that it's, a, it's the spring of the year. It's the, let's see if I can get this right. It is the first full moon after the spring solstice. That is how we discover when Good Friday is. And on that day, which we call Good Friday, Jesus did not have Good Friday then yet. Jesus was celebrating the Passover of Moses with his disciples in an upper room. There's a long story of how they got to that room, whose room was it, all kinds of historical biblical questions we're not going to go into. But they had spent the day before and that day preparing the biggest feast, the biggest celebration of the Hebrew year, Passover. Took a lot of planning. You had to figure out who was there because you had to go to the market or you had to go to the temple and you had to get a lamb. And you had to get the size of lamb that could be eaten by you and all your guests that night. Nothing left over. According to Moses, whatever was left over on that night had to be burned. So you could get a young lamb, and being a sheep farmer, I know you can get a 20-pounder. And from that, you get about 40%. You get about 10 pounds of meat and bones. And you can cook that down, feed you know, a family of, of six or seven guests. You can get a 30-pounder. You can get a 100-pound lamb. You have a big party. But it's all very traditional for 1,500 years. You understand, our country's been around 250. This is a 1,500-year celebration that's going on here. 1,500 years they've been doing that. We've had Christmas in our family 40 times. (laughs) It's a long ways from 1,500, right? I just want you to get the power of this Passover feast that the disciples have been doing since birth. 
whether they, when they didn't know it. And afterwards, this is what we do. Okay? The meal has four parts to it. There are four glasses of wine that go with it. Wine being fermented grape juice that is mixed in my reading and what the position I take is that it was 10 to 1, one, one, uh, one part of wine and, and one part of water for the sake of taste and for um, kill the bugs. There's no, there's no uh, water purification, no chlorine. And they made their feast. Many details that could be discussed. And it is in this setting, just a few hours earlier, Jesus has washed their feet. And they're saying he had washed Judas's feet. Okay? They're in this upper room. And Jesus begins a speech. So starting in chapter 13, which is the foot washing chapter, chapter 14 begins the speech called the Upper Room Discourse. It goes on into 15 and 16. And then chapter 17, Jesus prays a long prayer. So from 13 to 17 amounts to 25% of the Gospel of John. It's a huge chunk of what John wrote, devoted to what Jesus is doing, what he's saying. And understand, keep this in your mind, that within 18 hours of this speech, Jesus has been awake all night. He was tried by the priests. He was tried by Pilate. He was tried by Herod before 9 o'clock the next morning. And from 9 to 3, 18 hours after giving this speech, he is dead and buried. Okay? That's what happens. So when we say, in my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you, it's pretty violent. And so we kind of smooth over it for the children and say, Jesus is going to make a place for us in heaven. Right? Isn't that wonderful? He's going to build us a mansion. What does that take for human beings the likes of us to end up in a mansion with a perfectly wonderful, holy, righteous God? How do we get from here saying you should have bought a bigger lamb, you didn't do it right, from us cranky, arguing people, how do you get from there to the perfect presence of God? We're going to move now to the systematic theology of what we believe had to happen for us to enjoy communion. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is welcoming strangers at the table of God. So just one more point here on the history. These Hebrews thought they had an in. That because of their birth genetics through Abraham, they thought they were in. And Jesus has been telling them, unless your genetics change and you are born again from some, to something other than to something bigger than the Hebrews, you've got no place in the kingdom of God. But let not your heart be troubled. God's got this figured out. 
Not good. So we got a couple words here we're going to work on. What does it mean? What does Jesus have in mind when he says, my father's house? It's not the first time he's used that phrase. He hasn't used it a lot. He talks more about the kingdom of God than my father's house. But he does talk about it. And it, it, the, the phrase is in all four Gospels. So all four writers got it, including Luke, who got it secondhand, from Mark, who got it from Peter. What is the Father's house? The most powerful place where that is used is in John chapter 2. So here's a chronological story that some believe is moved way up to the front of John that should have been right before in this holy week where Jesus goes into the temple and he's kicking out the, the dove sellers and all of those. And he says, you scholars know, get these things out of here. You have turned my father's house into a den of robbers. Whoa. And he goes further. The author Mark, young guy Mark, heard Peter talk about it this way. Mark eleven seventeen. And as he was teaching them, saying to them, is, not, is it not written, Jesus said, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Wow. Wait a minute. I thought this was for the Hebrews. And you have to go back to Abraham 2,000 years before. Moses was 1,500 years before. Abraham was 2,000 years before. Where God said to Abraham, In you, Abraham, Abram at that point, and he changed his name to Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Can you hold that together? Jesus is calling the temple his father's house. And the temple is a blessing to all the nations. thought it was just for the Hebrews. There was a court for Gentiles where they were selling all their stuff. And then there was a court for just the men. Women and Gentiles were outside. This is, a very, this is a very segregated temple. Only the priests in the holy place and one priest once a year in the holy of holies. What's Jesus trying to say? That my father's house, in my father's house are many, many mansions, dwelling places. And I go to prepare that place for the nations, for sinners, for Gentiles, for Lutheran brothers, for non-Lutheran brothers. How does Jesus prepare that place? I go to prepare a place for you. And where I go, you know. How does that work? A second point of systematics here. What is Jesus going to do wherever he's going? I go to prepare a place for you. 
Those of you who have read through the Gospels will remember that as they were gathering in Jerusalem, according to Matthew 17, as they were gathering, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. What does that mean? Totally out of their world. You understand, we have really good evidence that if we get sick, we could be healed. Right? We live with a subconscious belief that medicine will solve our biological problems until it is our time. We love that. And we put up billboards on the side of the road, come to this hospital and we will save your life. I kind of hot about that. I love the medical field. But is that statement true? should say we will prolong your life and that may or may not be a good thing we're not going in that ditch okay <laughs> but i want to know you know, know where did jesus go and how had he predicted where he was going to go to his disciples the gospels say three times jesus told them i will be put to death I will be buried for three days, and then I will rise again. So in our systematic theology, what right do we have to come into the presence of God? How do we get there? Through the violent crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ, and then the glorious resurrection. Without an understanding of that history, we don't have any faith. And if we don't believe it, we certainly don't have any faith. When we tell the gospel, we tell that violent story. That my sins are paid for by the violence done to Jesus on the cross. That's his place. That's the reason Jesus came. That is the justification spot. And because of that spot, I can stand here and preach to you to say, welcome to your place at the table. When we get to Pentecost, we, can, we may be able to talk about the body of Christ and how we who have died to our sins and been baptized into Christ, we become the body of Christ with or without a 5013C, with or without a constitution. We become the body of Christ because of that violence and resurrection that covers our sin. To say, what, isn't he a bad man? Yeah, but he's not, he's not causing nearly as much problems as what Jesus paid for. Okay, so it's okay. You can hold your tongue, you can love them. Well, we're getting to the conclusion, but I have one more point in systematic theology. Martin Luther called this the communion of saints, according to the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to ask you to recite that in a moment. Are we part of the communion of saints, or are there divisions? Oh, and if you perceive some divisions, can we remind each other that we look at our divisions through the cross of Jesus? Jesus died for that person we don't understand. Therefore, this is God's work. This is his table. And we then are welcome. Who may be a member of the congregation of a Christian people? Answer. You memorized it? 
Uh, yeah, when I was 14. So you can, Bill says he's going to study the, the, the Apostles' Creed on Wednesday nights going on into the spring and summer. But here's the answer. According to the explanation of Luther's small catechism in a book, book published by the Church of Lutheran Brethren, this is the answer to that question. Anyone who has been baptized for the cleansing from sin and baptized into Christ, who has confessed faith in Christ as Savior, and who follows the procedures for membership in that congregation. So when we now say, let a person examine themselves, what are we asking you to do to examine yourself? To say, can I see myself in a place prepared by Jesus, not prepared by me? In a place prepared by Jesus, am I in that place? Through repentance and faith, am I in that place? Now the really hard part. Because like a horse with a harness, I, I do not have blinders on my face. And there are people who are different than me. And so I had to go through a lot of study to say, as you stand there with the communion bread and wine offering it to people who you know are struggling to grasp this immense theology of justification by faith. How do you think about those coming forward? Oh, not you. You can. Not you. No. Now, some churches do that. They have closed communion. But I'm preaching this sermon to you today to say, in the humble grace of Jesus, there's room for all of you. Well, what about, that's not your problem. That's God's problem. Okay? Now, you don't have to come forward today. We give you freedom to say, I'm not into it today. I can't figure it out today. And you leave those people alone. Just as you leave those who do alone, you leave those who don't alone. And then you go downstairs and have coffee. In the grace of Jesus. In the, pre in the place he prepared for you. Not the place you prepared. Not the place this denomination prepared. Not the place this restone religion, as in the Hebrew case. You've got to leave your childhood religion behind and come into the spiritual place. A place prepared for you in heaven. Now Jesus knew that that would cause some consternation. That would cause some, I don't know if I can handle that. In fact, Peter said when he washed his feet, well, if you're going to wash, you're not going to wash my feet. Well, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you've got no place with me. Well, then wash my whole body. Oh, you have been washed, but you're still human. So there's this dynamic here. This is not just eating bread and wine for some kind of mystery that God is going to now bless you on earth. Now this is the mystery of creating a church of like-minded people who say to the world, you may not feel like you fit in here, but you fit in somewhere. God loves the world. He died for the world. That is the foundation of missions and Pentecost and taking the gospel to all those languages. 
Missions scares me to death. And God the Father says, let not your heart be troubled. Don't worry about the mysteries of communion. Just come and enjoy dinner at my table in the grace of Jesus. And it'll be great. Jesus' grace welcomes strangers to his table. 